Hello, everyone. We originally recorded this episode with Professor Jonathan Krasner on October 14th, 2021, as the first event in our Learning About Learning webinar series. We're delighted to release it now as the first episode of our new podcast. Jonathan is a terrific historian of American Jewish education, and in this episode, we spoke about his recent research on the Ramah camping system in the 1990s, when Shelley Dorff became the head of the Ramah National Commission. Jonathan discussed the way that Ramah in this period underwent a kind of revitalization under Shelley Dorff's leadership. This was a time in which Ramah evolved from a focus on the most well-educated slice of American conservative Judaism, which it had done in its earlier phase, to much more of a broad tent, reaching more kids in more ways. Now, inevitably, these changes also generated some challenges and tensions, and Jonathan gives us some examples, especially regarding Shelley's effort to centralize the system and develop a shared vision, not only in the U.S., but even in Canada as well. He also tells us the story of the drama around the opening of Ramah Darom, which really rocked the boat for how Ramah did things. This conversation is particularly relevant for Jewish educators and Jewish professionals because Jonathan, as an historian, helps us to see how some of the features of the landscape of American Jewish camping that we now take for granted, things like Jewish specialty camps and philanthropic investment in the broad system of camps, these features were products of a particular set of pressures and a particular set of choices that were taken at a particular time. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy listening to my conversation with Jonathan as much as I enjoyed talking with him. Hello and welcome to the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education at Brandeis University. My name is John Levison. I'm the director of the Mandel Center and I'm delighted to bring you another installment in our podcast, Learning About Learning. At the Mandel Center, we are committed to advancing the field of Jewish educational scholarship, especially scholarship on teaching and learning, in order to make a deep and lasting difference on the lives of learners and the vibrancy of the Jewish community. That's our mission. We know that there's great scholarship being done in the field of Jewish education, but it's not always accessible. And even when it is, it's not always obvious why people in the field of Jewish education should care about it. That's what this podcast is about making really interesting scholarship on Jewish education accessible and talking with scholars about why it matters. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy learning about learning as much as I do. Let's get started. Our guest today for the first session of this series is my good friend and colleague here, Brandeis Jonathan Krasner. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Jonathan's bio that's all available online, but I do want to mention that in addition to writing terrific award-winning books and articles, Jonathan is also one of those scholars who's deeply involved with Jewish educational organizations and institutions. He's taught in Jewish day schools. He's been involved with Jewish camps. He teaches in the Jewish community. He was a founder of and he now sits on the board of Moving Traditions. Jonathan, it's great to be with you today. Wonderful to be here, John, and so happy to help launch what I hope will be uh, a really wonderful program. 
Great. So we're talking today about your article, which you recently completed, which is called, the title I believe is Ramah in Transition, the Sheldon Dorf Years, which is about the national camp Ramah system in the 1990s. It's going to appear in the forthcoming volume. Um, I think the title is Ramah at 75. Is that right? That is the working title. So I'm That's the working title. And, and Ramah has published a number of these. There's been a series of volumes produced by the National Ramah Commission that look back at various aspects of the history of of Ramah. I want to start by talking for just a minute about your methodology as an historian. I'm a philosopher, so when I do research in Jewish education, I think about a particular conceptual problem, and I read what other people have written about that problem, and then I, I develop my argument that way. But you're an historian, so tell us what this kind of research looks like. Yeah, that's a great question, John. So I was initially interested in this research project in part because the 1990s have been understood or we've been discussing over the past few years, the 1990s as a real turning point in the Jewish community with the 1990 population study and what has come to be known as the continuity movement. And I wanted to look at the way in which the context, namely this uh, continuity movement, had an impact on various systems. And uh, certainly the camping system was one of those systems. And so when the occasion presented itself, I jumped at the opportunity to write about Ramah. But as you kind of intimated, I was in a bit of a quandary because unlike, let's say, my book on Jewish education in the early 20th century, most of the people who I'm writing about in this article are alive and well, and one needs to be somewhat sensitive to that. Likewise, it isn't as if a lot of the documentation that I was relying on already exists in archival institutions. And so I think to directly answer your question, I was able to rely on interviews in a way that I wouldn't necessarily be able to if I were writing about a subject from a long time ago. So that was a real advantage. But I did want to make sure, since we all know that people's memories are fallible, I did want to make sure that I had a documentary record as well. And so one of the reasons why I agreed to do this article is because Sheldon Dorf kept his files and those were made available to me. And so I was able to check what I was hearing against a paper record. So I felt a little bit more comfortable about that. Uh -huh. That's great. So now let's turn to what you actually learned from, from doing the work. So what happened to Camp Ramah in the 1990s at the kind of 30,000 foot level? What's the big story here? So the thing that you need to understand going into this is that Ramah's early heyday was really the 1950s and the 1960s. And that Ramah experienced tremendous growth. There was real educational fermentation during that period. And then for a variety of reasons, some of them having to do with the economic downturn and inflation in the 1970s, and some of it having to do with just uh, the end of the baby boom and, and fewer campers. But for a variety of reasons, the camping movement in general kind of fell on hard times. And this particularly hit Ramah because Ramah had expanded really quickly in the 1960s. And so they were forced to close a camp and, and they were really kind of treading water, I think, for about a decade or a decade and a half. Certainly the cost of insurance went up and, you know, they, they were really having a hard time. And as a result of that, the facilities went into disrepair. The educational vision itself was kind of in stasis. And so with the advent of the 1990s, 
what we see is a real revitalization of the Ramah system due to, I think, the new energy that uh, Shelley Dorff brought, as well as an economic environment that was certainly much more robust than it had been before, and you know, more money flowing into the system. And, and so that story, I think, that revitalization story is part of what we should be looking at. But I think that if we dig just a little bit further, I think what we see is a camp system that was responding not only to these economic factors and these demographic factors, but was also trying to redefine itself in response to changes within the Jewish community. I wanted to drill down that because, you know, when we, we picture sort of the, maybe a golden age of Ramah, 50s and 60s, this is a whole generation later, and the conservative movement looks different a generation later, and I'm not at all discounting the importance of the economic factors and some of the demographic factors as well, but I'm really interested in the questions around vision and the evolution of that vision, and especially Shelley's, Shelley's influence there in the 90s. Yeah, so I would say that one of the main transformations that took place, and I wouldn't say that it happened overnight, and I wouldn't even say that Shelley alone was responsible for this, but certainly as a shorthand, we can say that the Dorf administration was a time in which one saw a change from a movement that had traditionally been a very elite-focused camping movement, a movement that was first and foremost about training the future leaders of the conservative movement to a more mass camping movement, a camping movement that was interested in all comers, anyone who had some Jewish education or had some Jewish connection. I believe that the registration document still asked whether you were a member of a, of a synagogue or a temple. So there was some sort of barrier, at least uh, theoretically, for entry. But by and large, they were casting a much, much wider net. And not only were they interested in touching more kids, they were also interested in reaching more conservative Jews and Jews more generally. And so the work of the camp extended not only to those, you know, eight or nine weeks over the summer, but you began to see retreats for families. You began to see Passover holiday retreats. You began to see uh, the camping movement being involved in synagogue revitalization efforts. So really what you're seeing here is a camping movement that is redefining itself and repositioning itself. I, I think some of that came naturally, and I think some of it was really difficult because it went against some ingrained, I think, traditions that were valued by the folks at the center of the Raman movement. And, and they had to contend with that. So this is really interesting, Jonathan. I think when those of us who are thinking about the camping movement, Ramah, but others as well in the last generation, maybe it's an assumption that's accepted that of course camps are going to be wide open. Of course, they're going to be trying to draw enrollment as broadly as possible. But you're naming that this was actually a transition. And then the earlier years, there was this much more elite conception of what camp was going to be all about. And in some way, this was a transitional point. So say some more about the tensions that emerged in this moment when there were these transitions happening. So I think that one of the tensions is really that in order to undergo this kind of transformation process, one needs to look at oneself in the mirror and be honest about what you see. And that means, I think, kind of slaying some sacred cows. 
For example, the Ramam movement had always prided itself as being a Hebrew-speaking camp, yet anyone who actually went to a Ramah camp, and here I would say there was certainly a difference between Wisconsin, which was a much more Hebrew-rich camp, you know, I, I don't want to name names, but some of the other camps that were a little bit less Hebrew-rich, but no matter which camp you went to, what you would find is what my colleagues Sharon Avni and Sarah Benor and I call Hebrew infusion rather than an immersive Hebrew environment. And I think that the camps had to come to terms with the reality as it existed, rather than the story that they like to tell themselves about what was happening at their camps. And, you know, Hebrew is just one example of that, but I think it's a very potent example. Just make sure everybody understands. So in that example, you do talk about Hebrew in the paper, but in that example, you're also drawing on your other scholarship, the book Hebrew Infusion that was co-authored, you and Sarah Benoit and Sharon Avni, and that was published what, last year and, right. uh, and won an award. And Ramah is important in that story, as well as a bunch of other camps. And everybody should absolutely take a look at that as well. Tell me more about the tension between kind of centralization, if Shelley Dorf is trying to move the movement in a particular way from the kind of central office, the tension between a centralization and a much looser confederation of camps as that evolved in the 90s. Right. So just a little bit of background. Um, for those of you that aren't familiar with the Ramah system, it's important to understand that Ramah camps developed, some of them developed independently, like for example, in Wisconsin, you had a group of rabbis who started the camp, but really from the outset, the Jewish Theological Seminary was heavily involved in the camp, certainly in terms of staff, in terms of the educational program. Over time, though, what ended up happening is that each camp really developed its own independent personality, its own board, and was also responding to the fact that Judaism looks different, let's say, in California than it does in New York. And what Dorf was presented with was a system that was really more like a confederation and less like a movement. And he really felt that in order to bring Ramah forward, he needed to bring the various camps together on the same page. And I think that he will admit, and I certainly show this in the paper, he was only partially successful in this, but he did make great strides. And certainly his successor, Mitch Cohen, has continued in that vein. I think that each of the camp directors, and especially the camp boards, they really sort of put themselves first. And what Shelley was trying to show them is that if you wanted to sort of attract big money, and if you wanted to create a reputation for the Ramah movement, that you needed to act in concert. And, you know, I think we could talk about specific examples. There was the example of uh, Ramah magazine, which Shelley thought would be a great PR device. But of course, what ended up happening is that each camp had a different vision of the Ramah that it wanted to see in the magazine. And things really kind of blew up when they published an issue on women's ordination and female rabbis at camp. And one has to remember that the conservative movement only began ordaining women in the 1980s. So, and this was the 1990s. So it was really only a decade after the ordination of women. And there were parts of North America that were, let's say, more on the wagon. And there were ones that were, you know, parts of America that were less progressive on the issue of egalitarianism and Canada in particular yeah. was 
less egalitarian and the notion of a magazine that would be devoted to women's ordination and the role of women rabbis at camp for Camp Ramah in Canada, which wasn't a fully egalitarian camp, you know, that, that seemed like, why are we spending money on this? This is not the Ramah that we even recognize. So there were real tensions there. Yeah, I think it's also helpful to think about this time period as in a lot of different Jewish educational organizations, institutions, as one of increasing professionalization, increasing consolidation in national organizations. So in the day school movement went through something similar, going from kind of individual mom and pop shops to being more tightly connected to the agency of PEGE. So there was, Camps were not, and Ramah was not the only institution that was experiencing this tension of having grown up with a bunch of smaller local institutions with a lot of control to starting to see themselves as part of a bigger movement for better, but sometimes also for worse. Absolutely. The process that Shelley initiated, the centralization process, it was brought to a new level, I would say, with the influx of foundation investment, because, you know, the Avichai Foundation or the Jim Joseph Foundation or, you know, FJC, the Foundation for Jewish Camp, they didn't want to deal with each individual camp. They wanted to deal with, you know, the figurehead who was going to speak for the movement as a whole. And I think that the camps realized that they could maintain their individual identities while at the same time coming together for some larger purposes that would benefit everyone. I think one of the other things that happened, and here's another way that Shelley was responding to the moment, is that he diversified what camp looks like and embrace the idea of specialty camps at a time when that was really only beginning in the camping world. I think now we take for granted, in part, I think because of FJC's incubator, that you're going to have sports camps and you're going to have arts camps and you're going to have, you know, eco farming camps and all these sorts of things. Shelley was really at the uh, vanguard in that process. And, you know, he believed, and even though his administration didn't actually open the Ramah Outdoor Adventure uh, the Ramah and the Rockies camp, it was on the drawing board and Shelley was very much behind it. And I think that, you know, his attitude was camp in the Rockies will look different than let's say camp in New England will look different than camp in California. And that's totally fine, right? Right. So that's fascinating that on the one hand, there's a certain degree of centralization, but it's not homogenization. It's not that everybody has to look alike. If anything, the effort to say camp ought to be for everyone, if camp is going to be for everyone, not just for an elite, then we have to also think about kind of varying the models and not holding to just one standard. And we say, this is what a Ramah has to look like. This is how, you know, this is what Ramah campers have to look like, what staff has to look like, what the educational program has to look like. It doesn't always have have to fit exactly. that exactly. Exactly. And I'll give you one more quick example of that, which is another sacred cow that he had to slay, which was eight-week camping. Ramah had been really devoted to this notion of eight-week camping, which in my mind, whether they realized it or not, was probably very much influenced by the polio epidemic um, in the late 40s and early 50s, when you needed to get the kids out of the city for the entire summer. And, you know, some years there weren't even visitors' days. I think we can relate to that now with COVID because you didn't want to infect the kids. But then over time, what was maybe a necessity that was sort of uh, foisted on the camps because of the environment became kind of the dogma of the camps. And what Shelley realized was that it was okay if Ramah, California had three-week sessions. And it was okay, you know, if a sports camp had 
two-week session. Yeah, I I don't want to pretend that he was happy about it. I think that there was a part of Shelley, there is a part of Shelley that was still sort of a little bit of a traditionalist, but he recognized that one size doesn't fit all. So I want to turn to the question of what really surprised you. I know you want to talk about Ramad de Rome. So what what surprised you in this research as you as you started to open up the books and talk to people? Yeah, so you anticipated my answer here. What surprised me was the drama around the opening of Ramad de Rome, which is the Ramah camp in northern Georgia. This was the first camp, first new camp that Ramah had opened in over two decades. And it came to symbolize Shelley's desire to expand, to move forward. And I think that on paper, once people felt confident that the other camps were filling uh, you know, their, their beds, um, I think that people felt like in theory, it was a really great idea to open up a camp in a part of the country that was underserved. And many of those kids from the South had to go all the way up to Ramah, New England, and, and hopefully this would solve the problem. But actually, when it actually came to doing it, it was very, very difficult. And it wasn't even the money that was the problem because they managed to attract a number of large donors, including Mayor Bubba Mitchell and, and Leonard Kaplan, whose names I have to mention because they, they were really, you know, sort of the builders of, of, of that camp. So it wasn't even really the money. They also had a lot of lay leaders like Eric Singer who were devoted to opening up that camp. The problem was that there was infighting within the conservative movement, both between the United Synagogue and the Jewish Theological Seminary about, you know, whose footprint would uh, be largest down in the South that had traditionally been uh, United Synagogue territory. And now the Ramah movement was moving in on on that territory and, and I guess presumably those donors. And at the same time, there was an, you know, sort of intercamp argument between Ramah New England, which I had mentioned had those Southern kids going to its camp and their fear that they would lose campers if Ramada Rome opened. And finally, and, and with, with much sort of back and forth, a compromise was reached where the catchment areas of the various camps were redrawn so that uh, Ramah New England would have more kids from the New York area, basically, to compensate for the kids that it was going to lose from the South. And that's why, for example, if you live, let's say, north of I-287 in the New York area, even though Ramah Berkshires is a lot closer to where you live, you're actually going to Ramah, New England rather than Ramah okay. Berkshires. So we only have a couple minutes left. And as we knew, we were going to run out of time really, really quickly. There are some questions, for example, if we had more time, I'd love to hear more, your perspective more on the question of inclusion and varieties of inclusion in Ramah camps. But my last question that I want to close with is what we learned from this case? What do we learn from the case of Ramah in the 90s? And why does it matter? Why does this particular scholarship matter? Why does Camp Ramah in the 90s matter? Yeah, so I want to say 20 seconds here. The pioneering work of Tikva, which is the inclusion program at Ramah, was, I think, really instrumental in helping Shelley to realize that Ramah could reach lots of different audiences. And certainly, not only did he grow Tikva during that period, introducing it to more camps and serving more kids who, who were um, in need of Tikva, but he also used it as an example of how Ramah could diversify. But to answer your question, I think that looking at this camp 
movement gives us a much more complex understanding of how Jewish continuity affected various sectors of the Jewish education world. I think that it also gives us a different view of camping than quantitative surveys. We've had a number of surveys that were done, um, certainly Limud at the Lake, which was done by our colleagues at the Cohen Center. Leonard Sachs and, and Amy Sales played an important role in showing that camp could be a significant and, and um, I think, vital site for Jewish education. But I think that the kind of historical research that I did really, I think, gives us a more nuanced view of what was actually going on on the ground. Looking at Ramah helps us, I think, to understand what happened you know, the in the next decade with the growth of the Foundation for Jewish Camp. Wonderful. That is great. Jonathan, I want to thank you for joining me. It's great to talk with you about this work. Thank you all for joining us. Um, I want to encourage everyone to join us again for the next conversation in this series, which will be with Professor Laura Yaris of Michigan State University. And you can find out more about that on the Mandel Center website. And with that, thank you all for joining us and be well. <laughs>